This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, we thank God for this Palm Sunday uh, where Christ made his inaugural um, march into Jerusalem to declare that he was the king. Uh, he was the people's king. And so we celebrate this day on Palm Sunday. But before, as we think about Palm Sunday, it's about him making his way to the cross. And so uh, we want to thank Pastor George for doing an excellent job in preaching and proclaiming the cross uh, because the cross uh, the gospel and the cross go hand in hand. You cannot have good news without the cross. And so today we want to look at the culmination of that, of this series of messages, and want to thank Danny for reading that passage so well. Uh, I'm reminded of a story of a father who wanted to give his daughter something to do. Uh, she uh, seen to have been in a lot of mischief, and there was a picture of the world on a sheet of paper. So he had this idea that he would cut uh, this sheet of paper into pieces and give it to his daughter and rearrange it, give it to his daughter uh, to figure out how to put it back together like a puzzle. And so he thought to himself, it'll take her a good while to figure this thing out, so I'll just go back to the garage and work on the car and do what I need to do. And soon as he went to the garage, his daughter came to him and said, Dad, I've, I finished the puzzle. And he was just stupefied that she had done and finished the puzzle. And he went and looked at the sheet that he had cut up and she put it back together. And he said, how were you able to put this puzzle back together again so quickly. She said, Pops, it was easy. There was a picture of Jesus on the other side, and I figured that if I got Jesus right, then the world will fall into place. And you know, just like that little girl, I think sometimes we, we forget that it's not until we get Jesus right will our world fall into place personally only until we get Jesus right will our world fall into place in this 21st century. We've got to get Jesus right. And that's the exact predicament that the Colossian church was in. Because they had been miseducated. They had Jesus all wrong. They thought that if they could add something else, another God to Jesus, that Jesus didn't cover all the bases. And so they felt like if I add something else to Jesus, there were some religious teachers, some false teachers, teachers who had come into the Colossian church and they had gotten Jesus all wrong. So this text tells us today that it's important that we get Jesus right because until we get him right, will our world will continue to be in chaos. And so Paul in so many words, tell the church in Coloss, you've got to get Jesus right. And he begins in Colossians 1, 15 to 23, and he begins to paint this picture of the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. And he begins to counter what the false teachers have been telling the church in Coloss 
that Christ was not enough. Paul wanted them to understand, he wanted to set the record straight that Jesus Christ is more than enough. So when we look at verses 15 to 23, uh, we begin to understand that Paul begins to paint this picture of the cosmic reality of who Christ is. And then he talks about the, what Christ is to the church. Christ is the head of the church. And then he goes from general to specific, and he says that Christ has done the work of redemption not only in our personal lives, but he has redeemed the world. And so Paul begins to explicate what he means about what, it, what Christ looks like and what Christ has done. Now, I know you're, you're in your homes right now, and, you know, I'm still, I still have some Baptist tendencies in me. And uh, if, I, if you can just say amen when you hear the truth, uh, you can have church right in, the, in your own home, right in your living room. So I need you to talk back to me. And by faith, I'm going to accept the fact that you're saying amen. Amen. So we see Paul talking about the supremacy of Christ. And what Paul tells us is that in verses 15 to 18, he said Christ is the image of of the invisible God, that when you see Christ, you've seen God, you've seen the Father. He says Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And we're going to flesh that out as we begin to talk more about it. Christ is before all things. Christ is the head of the body, the, the church. Christ is the beginning and Christ is the firstborn from the dead. So Paul presents this majestic picture of Christ. And he says to the Colossian church, Christ covers all the bases. You don't need another God. When you've got Jesus, you've got enough. So Paul counters what this school of thought that had been taught called Gnosticism and Gnosticism had invaded the Colossian church and, and they were teaching that you, it's all right to have Jesus, but you, you need this secret knowledge that only a select few people have. And, and Jesus is great. He's a demigod, but there are other demigods that, that you need to include in your understanding of the totality of who God is. Paul says, no. No, if you've got Jesus, you, you've got enough. You don't need anyone else. And isn't that how it is in the 21st century today? Sometimes we treat Jesus as if he is not enough. Uh, sometimes we treat Jesus as if he's just a part of the equation of who we need. But when you boil the Christian life down to, the, to its least common denominator, you've got to have Jesus Christ. You've got to have him. But perhaps the Colossian church was struggling with the fact that uh, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit could not be seen. And I can understand that I would prefer to be able to see God the Father. I would prefer to be able to see God the Son. 
I don't know about you, but I, I, I do have difficulties in relating to an invisible God. Sometimes, you know, I struggle with the fact that I can't touch him, that I can't see him, that I can't relate to him. I don't always, I don't know where he is. He doesn't verbally respond to me when I talk to him. And I don't know what he looks like. So I can understand uh, uh, the Colossian church uh, struggling with who God is, but Jesus sets the record straight. He says, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God. That word image is, is the Greek word icon, that he is the express exact image of the invisible God. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells his disciples, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And all that can be known about God, of God, was manifested in his Son. It also carries with it the idea that, that the Son and the Father are in a tight relationship with one another. That God the Son has the Father's DNA in him. And that he is tied to the Father, that he is in a deep relationship with the Father. And I like the way Jurgen Moltmann said in his book, The Crucified God. He says, Jesus died for God before he died for us. And, and I, I love that statement because it implies that whenever you read through the Gospels, you find this uh, Christ making these statements. He says, I do those things that please my father. And even on the cross, he has a conversation with the father. There's a relationship. There's a dynamic relationship uh, between Jesus and the father. So Jesus died for God the father before he died for us. That was his priority to please the father. He went to the cross first and foremost for the father. Jurgen Moltmann says another thing, if you want to understand who God is, he says when the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the meaning is that this is God. God and God is like this. He goes on to say that God is not greater than he is in this humiliation on the cross. God is not more glorious than he is in this self-surrender on the cross. God is not more powerful than he is in this helplessness on the cross. God is not more divine than he is in this humanity. When we see the crucified God, when we see Jesus on the cross, we actually see God at his best. God, the Son, is on the cross because when, you know, when you're in a crisis situation, even the crisis will bring the worst out of you or it will bring the best out of you. And I would hope that in this 21st century, even in the context of COVID-19, that this crisis will bring the best out of us as Christians. Amen? Well, here's the thing, here's the thing Paul begins to lay out in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He talks about the cosmic reality 
of Christ, but that, that Christ holds everything together. Look at what he says in verse 16. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. In him, all things in heaven and on earth was created. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him, for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One has to come to the conclusion as Paul begins to talk about Christ, and he says, in him, through him, for him, by him, and in him. Paul has come to the conclusion that the Bible is really a hymn book. It's, it's all about Jesus Christ. And this is what we see Paul saying. Paul is actually, in some ways, doing the same thing we see in Genesis when we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. He's, always, he's also doing what John did in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He's also doing what the writer of Hebrews does in Hebrews chapter 1, that in various times and various places, God spoke to the prophets, but in these latter days, he's spoken through his son. So Paul begins to talk about the cosmic reality of who Jesus is, that he was in the beginning. He was in the beginning, and he was very much engaged in the creation that he, he was the agent by which the creation came into being. So when we look through microscope or telescope and at the composition of a cell or get a snapshot of one galaxy among many galaxies, one would have to conclude that there is an intelligent designer. When we look at the great attention to details that the creator of the universe went through to create and design every little facet of the universe, one would have to come to the logical conclusion that there is a divine designer. This is what Paul is saying. This is how Paul is countering the Gnosticism of his day. He's saying that when you've got Christ, you, you've got everything that you need. This is what verses 16 and 17 is telling us. But then Paul goes from general, he goes from cosmic to ecclesiastical. He goes to the church. And he says in verse 18, he is the head of the body. The church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That he is the head. It, this, this phrase, that he is the head of the body, it means that Christ is the leader of the church. In other words, it means that the church takes its cues, takes its orders from the head. He is the mind or the control center of the church. Just as the brain or the mind is to the human body, so is Christ to the spiritual body called the church. The church takes its orders from Christ. The church moves according to Christ, the head of the body. 
Brothers and sisters, we, we've got to get back to, to the fact that Christ is the head of the body. We've got to get back to the rule of faith. Paul is, is really correcting the Colossian church and saying you've got to get back to the rule of faith, the apostolic teaching of the church. That you, you, you can't add anything to that. You can't take any away from it. You've got to get back to the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the rule of faith that if you really want to understand the world, look for Jesus. If you really want to understand the Bible, look for Jesus. This is what Paul is saying to us. But in, Paul is also implying here that it's not enough to talk about the cosmic reality of Jesus Christ, that he created the universe, that he created the, the galaxies. But what does this cosmic reality of Christ and Christ being the head of the church, what bearing does it have on my life and your life? That's the question that we must ask ourselves today. That's the question that we must ask the church visible and invisible, Christ's headship should be evident in our church and in our lives in the sense that we believe in the word of God, we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We teach, we preach, the word must become flesh in us, that we must live out the true reality of who Jesus is because we may be the only Jesus that somebody will ever see. And so in practical ways, the church should be at its best in crisis moments like this, in turbulent times like this. The church should be at its best because Christ was always at his best. And even on the cross, he was at his best. So the cosmic work of Christ in creation, we got to also look at the work the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, they are not mutually exclusive, but they are intertwined with one another. And this is what I love about the early church, that they looked at the cosmic work of Christ in creation and the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, and they said these things go hand in hand. They fit like a glove, that the, the cross and creation go hand in hand. But what he's also saying is that through the cross, came the understanding or it became the gateway to the new creation. So here's the thing, brothers and sisters, when we think about the reality of the cross and we think about the head of the church, how do you and how do I, how do we reflect Christ's supreme place in our lives? That's the question that we must ask ourselves. How do we live our lives in such a way that it reflects the supremacy of Christ? Have we made any decisions in our lives that we say, well, how can I bring this area of my life under the supremacy of Christ? How can I bring my finances? How can I bring my family? How can I bring my time, my possessions under the supremacy of Christ. This is what the Colossian church had to understand that we must give Christ, give God the first fruits of our time as an expression of his supreme place in our lives. 
We must give Christ the, the, the first fruits of our time and of our talents and of our finances to bring it into uh, under the authority of Jesus Christ. So what in your life is not under Christ's authority? What, what in your life? Because what happens when it's not under the authority of Christ, we have a tendency to worship the gift and not the giver. We have a tendency to lose sight that we, speak, we begin to treat our gifts, our possessions like it is God. And God says, wait a minute, I'm the source. Those are just resources. And we have to bring everything and begin to realize that, and this is what Paul is saying in this text, is that Christ is the source of everything. Everything under the heaven, everything on the earth, that Christ is the source. He holds all those things together. Amen? So, brothers and sisters, here, here, here's the thing Paul is saying here that in verse 19, and this is really the nucleus of this passage, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Look at what Paul is saying. That God the Father put all of himself in God the Son in the incarnation. That the divine action of the incarnation became the means by which God chose to reconcile us to himself. But not only just to reconcile us, but to reconcile the world, the cosmic, the, the galaxies, everything to himself. God chose the incarnation. And Jesus becoming the God, the Father, prepared a natural body for his son to dwell from birth to death and ultimately to the resurrection. That God did that. That God, the Father, and God, the Son had a meeting together and they decided, I, the Son said, I will go into the world. I will subject myself to the frailty of humanity. I will subject myself to the violence of humanity and I will redeem the world. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, and this, this, this passage says that by making peace through the blood of his cross, that the violent action of the crucifixion became the means by which God reconciled us to himself. That out of this violent action came reconciliation. Out of this violent action on the cross came justification. Out of this violent action, action on the cross came peace. Out of this violent action on the cross came God's love and mercy. Out of this violent action on the cross, we receive an inheritance that could only have come through the crucifixion. See, brothers and sisters, the moment of the crucifixion signals the, this new era of peace, this new creation, this Cosmic reconciliation accomplished not by power, but by the vulnerability of the Son of God. 
I love the way Fleming Rutledge said it. She said, the cross is the most irreligious object ever to find its way into the heart of faith. That Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. And what she's really saying is that we, we cannot get to, to the joy of Easter without going through the cross. We've got to go through the cross. See, in the meantime, God has inaugurated this new era, this, this new humanity through Christ. When it talks about the firstborn from the dead and, and the firstborn of creation, the implication here, brothers and sisters, is that the, the concept of firstborn was carried over from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and the firstborn was the one who received the inheritance. He, it was the one, he was the one who, who had the authority. It, he was the one who was the chief of the tribe, of the community. And so Christ becomes the firstborn from the dead and the firstborn of this new creation. That just like in the first Adam, God created Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him and he became a living being. And just like this first Adam, through the cross and through the death of Christ and the resurrection, God created a second Adam and pulled the second Adam out of the ground and Christ represents that second Adam and the new creation that will be inaugurated through Christ. And so Christ becomes the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead, and it's really a, a proleptic understanding that just as it happened to Christ, it will happen to everyone who believes in Christ that we will all be resurrected as a result of Christ being the first fruits and the firstborn of that resurrection. Fleming Rutledge says, from beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testified that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irremediable from within that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. And that's what the cross is. Cross, the cross of Jesus Christ is the divine intervention of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to rectify the chaos in our world. So God has come to reconcile us, to redeem us, to renew us, and the cross becomes that gateway by which he does that. You see, the cosmic working work of Christ in creation and the redemptive work of Christ on the cross go hand in hand. And the gateway of the new creation, as it's spelled out in Revelation 4, verses 1 through 4, John says, after this, I looked, and there in heaven stood a door open. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what, what must take place after this. 
John gets an opportunity to see the big picture. And he says, at once I was in the spirit and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne and the one seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne is a rainbow. Around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones and seated on the throne. There are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. John wants us to get a vision of what happened as a result of the cross. That the rainbow of new creation begins at the cross of Calvary and finds its end in the throne room in heaven. That when we see a rainbow, we, it, we, it ought to remind us, just like it reminded Noah, that that was a promise. But when we see the rainbow today, it reminds us that the new creation begins at the cross in time, in history, and finds its end at the throne room in heaven. So from the earth to heaven, a rainbow has been created as a result of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about. This is why, we're, why, why we do what we do. This is why we walk with Jesus. This is why Jesus is our Lord and Savior. This is why we worship him. This is why we commemorate and we make much of the blood of Christ. This is why we make much of the cross of Jesus Christ because there's a new creation being inaugurated. And I like the way my grandmother used to sing this song, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. I want to walk in Jerusalem just like John. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done on the cross. We thank you, dear God, that there's a rainbow from Calvary, from Golgotha's hill, and that rainbow makes its way all the way to the throne room in heaven. And Father God, may every time we see that rainbow, may we be reminded to live into this reality that we are already a part of new creation, even though it hasn't yet come to full fruition, but we're to walk it out like it has already happened. So Lord, we thank you for what you've done in Jesus Christ. It's in his matchless, mighty, and marvelous name we pray. Amen.